The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the return of the growth trade and whether it is the best bet for your money for at least the next few months. We discuss and debate that with our investment committee today. And joining me for the hour are Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, John Najarian, and Kerry Firestone, the CEO of Arias Asset Management. Let's go to the wall, take a look at the chart, see where stocks are heading today. They are higher. NASDAQ's even gone positive. The president throwing an 11th hour wrench into the stimulus push. Unclear what that means to the final bill, which has already passed. However, for now, the market seems convinced something will happen sooner or later. Should also let you know that a little later on today on this program, Altimeter's Brad Gerstner is going to join us to talk about the new way companies can go public. We're going to get his thoughts on the market as well. So we're looking very much forward to that. Joe, you know, we set this up as the growth trade is back and it is in December. Growth is leading value. And just when I say that, I look at the notes and it says Joe Terranova sold CRM. You sold Salesforce. Why, Joe? I did. Well, Scott, I had to sell Salesforce to raise some capital to buy some other names. I purchased Sensata Technology. That's an EV play. I bought CNX Resourceage. That's an energy play. And I bought Capital One. But back to Salesforce. This is not about Salesforce being a bad business. I believe in Salesforce. It screens very high on my quality momentum index. It's in it. This is about I made a bad purchase. I bought Salesforce too aggressively, too high. And I'm just paring back the holding. I'm sure over the course of time it'll move forward uh, from where it is here. But I needed to raise some capital to get in some other names, Scott, that I think are going to work in the near term versus Salesforce. Well, I just said that the, you know, the, the growth trade's working over value. You've just sold some growth and moved into value. A believer in the energy trade and cap one, two, some, some of the financials. Why play against the momentum run? Oh, I don't think I'm playing against the momentum run in its entirety, but what I'm doing is I'm respecting the diversification that is needed in my equity holdings. And I think the market on Monday told us everything that we needed to know. There should have been a flight to safety. There was not. The VIX was at 32. It's now at 22. You're at the end of a quarter, Scott, in which you should be seeing a rebalancing out of equities into bonds for portfolios. You're not seeing that. So I'm respecting all of that. I'm realizing I still have DocuSign in the portfolio. I have my Apple. I have my Microsoft. My Lululemon, my Monster. I've got my established growth. I just wanted to increase a little bit of the exposure towards what I would define as quality. Okay. So, Kerry, let, let's, take, let's take Joe's example and take it to the next layer for our conversation. Is it time to be a selective seller of some of these high-flying growth names? You write an op-ed today. On CNBC.com, at some point, sky-high valuations will matter, just like they did for the dot-com busts. So how do you address that question? Time to be a selective seller of these names or not? 
Yes, Scott, I, I think it is. Uh, we, we did a study of the market and looked at all of the companies over $10 billion in market cap that are selling for 10 times or more next 12 months revenue. There are 117 of those companies now. A year ago, it was in the 40s, and two years ago, it was 21. We have a little chart that Vinny put together, and you can see that as interest rates have come down, the likelihood of buyers, big buyers of names that sell at extremely high multiples has gone up. And we just think that this is a time to be careful about owning too much of a portfolio in names that have gotten extended. They're parabolic. I mean, if you look at the chart of you know, a name like Snowflake or, or Trade Desk or MongoDB, these are interesting and very good companies. Most are based on cloud software and they have a market, but it's not unlimited for all of them. And if we can't make a case that the company will grow into the, re the, the type of valuation, then you know we'd have to trim it back. We own Twilio, which we've owned all year. It's been a great stock. We've trimmed it back three times. It was a mistake, really, but we still own a big position. And we think that's the prudent thing to do. If 15% of the market cap of the entire U.S. market, all public, all public equities, is in stocks that trade at these kind of levels, that's more than we would feel comfortable. So, yeah, I, I think it's time to do that. And perhaps the place to put some money is, is maybe an Apple or, um, or, or the type of name like CRM where, you know, they pause, they've come down. So, so we think that there's uh, a, a good area of growth to invest in and it should not be as heavily into the extremely high valued names that have been the spike of the market for the last couple of months. Well, I mean, Doc, Doc NASDAQ's been hitting new highs lately. I mean, lately for the last few days in a row. Is, is that the train you want to get off of now? No. No, it's not, Scott. Um, we, we all know, we anticipate that there will be some tougher days in the middle of January to the end of January. But um, I think that you stick with the reopening plays, all of which virtually are working today phenomenally well, along with tech. I, like I say, I think the first three weeks of next year are going to be great for those tech names, Scott. Um, and I think that after probably by mid-February, those reopening names really start catching a lift again, similar to what they're getting today. So, you know, whether it's uh, the airlines or cruise lines or whatever it might be, uh, Vegas, I think all of that starts working, but probably not at the very beginning of the new year, but certainly 30 and 60 days in, I think you want to be in those names. Okay, Steve Weiss, so sum it all up for me. As MKM today says, quote, we continue to be bullish longer term on technology, but currently feel some of the best charts are cyclical value companies. So make sense of that for me. Well, MKM said, what's the best way for me to sit on the fence and participate if both areas work? And they gave it to you. Look, I, I agree with what yep. Carrie says. However, you know, who are we to say at this point with the new, with the democratization of investing through zero commissions, through Robinhood, through fractional shares, that the way people are looking at companies, which is basically saying, you promised me you're going to do this, you did this, now I'm going to buy some more and reward you for doing that. And that that is not the new valuation metric for stocks, performance, rewarding execution. I'm not there ever. I'm not owning those high flyers. 
I own other high flyers that are below the radar. And guess what? They are performing. They're growing into their valuation. But look, this is a market that's not going to end anytime soon. And as I've been consistent, it's a growth market. It's a technology market because that's the industrial revolution. Like you want to own steam engines in the first or second industrial revolutions. <laughs> you want to own tech right now. And that's purely the way to look at it. Right. But you don't want to own tech, Steve, at any price, do you? No, I don't. And there are some that I think are absolutely ludicrous. And that's why I said there are other high flyers under the market that aren't as crowded, that aren't the Airbnbs, that aren't the snowflakes that are giving their CEO ridiculous comp packages, that are giving investors more of that. So you've got to be have some discretion in terms of what you're owning and look for the business models that are actually improving and don't have the big crowds that are in. Take a look at Moderna. Nothing's changed in the story of Moderna. Maybe it shouldn't have gotten to 170, but I can tell you for sure it shouldn't have gotten down to, to 119, 118 earlier today. And that's because a lot of people that owned it, owned the momentum. They said, all right, momentum's breaking here. The vaccine's being delivered. Great, great, great. Let me get out. But that's an opportunity. And maybe get an opportunity to Airbnb it at half of where it is now. But I wouldn't own growth but at wait, any price. To be price. clear, no, though, as, as you've watched Moderna go to, you know, in the 120s, you bought more. In fact, I think you bought more either today or, yes, I or did. yesterday or maybe both. I don't know. I, I bought it today. I bought it today because I think that we're at a spot now where you've taken. Look, I trimmed it as it got up and not at 170, but in the 150s. It's got too big. It, it went much bigger without, you know, because of depreciation. So it pays to trim and get back to the right size. But getting down to 120, which is a ridiculous correction, more than a 30 percent correction. You know, I thought that. It's a good time to buy it. Let me just ask so, you. So I add it to my position. Joe, let me just ask you plainly. You know, yeah. are, are people too bullish right now or not? No, I, I, I think that sentiment um, has snapped back very quickly. And I think that is the problem. Remember where we were prior to the U.S. presidential election. Uh, we, we had sentiment that was very depressed. It's come back quickly. That is for sure. I would say the most important thing that you could be doing right now when observing technology is identifying risk, risk relative to the downside. So if I look personally at my holdings, I have Advanced Micro, I have Apple, I have Teradyne, I have Microsoft, mm -hmm. and then I've got DocuSign, which you and I have discussed that I almost got stopped out of. But I want to focus on that established growth. I want to own the Microsofts and the Apples. I'm not sure I want to be chasing... I want to be chasing the emerging growth, which has the triple-digit valuation attached to it. I don't think that's the right circumstance to be allocating towards right now. But I think sentiment is correctly aligned with the conditions uh, that are within the market. And then lastly, Scott, it's the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is not going anywhere. You know, we keep talking about buybacks uh, being allowed last Friday. I think what was most important from that was you can't tell me that Treasury Secretary-elect Janet Yellen was not consulted on that, which gives you, I think, a very powerful signal on the coordination that's going to remain in place in 2021. So let me ask you this, though. Mm -hmm. if, if rates continue to mm -hmm. rise, Joe, okay, if the 10-year keeps going up, isn't that going to take money out of the growth trade? To a certain degree, it will take it out of what I said before, which would be uh, your, your DocuSign. Your Zoom. I don't think it takes it out of the established growth. I also suspect that the best thing for equities 
would be for yields to rise because you are going to begin to see that rotation that we've been anticipating for the better part of the last two or three years. That's going to allow for flows of capital. We keep asking, where is the buyer coming from at this level for the S&P 500? Well, I think it has to come from the Treasury market. So I'd love to see yields above 1%, but I think that uh, allocation would go specifically geared toward rightful valuation, the Facebooks, those type of technology growth names. Yeah, the ones that basically have gone sideways since September. It's worth noting, even as Carrie, you suggested, exactly. you know, maybe taking some profits in some of the yeah. high flyers, the biggest valuation ones, and even putting money into names like Apple. How do you answer the question, though? Are people too bullish? Jeffrey says, quote, in almost an exact replay of the end of last year, our risk indicators have begun to flash euphoria with sentiment just a tad too bullish. Are they right? Mm -hmm. Uh, in some parts of the market, they are. I, I think it's, it's uh, interesting. You can see the dichotomy. On one end, you have these names like CrowdSource, Active, CRISPR, you know, Moderna even, uh, where, where price got a little uh, ahead of itself, or in some cases, a lot ahead of itself. And then on the other side, you know, one, one could say that the reopening trade, whether it was on cruise airlines, some of the energy stocks, um, hotels, Maybe that's a little ahead of itself right, but, right but now. But that's not one part uh, of the market. And, and what that leaves... Right, you're, you're, the way you answered well, the question oh, no, initially was, well, that's... in one part of the market. Well, now we've identified two parts of the market. <laughs> we've identified a substantial right, portion so... of the reopen trade, and now we've identified <laughs> yeah. the high-growth, super-momentum, high-valuation trade. All right, so I've got two now. Yeah, I... I... <laughs> so I think the part of the market <laughs> that led for the first few uh, quarters, the first three quarters of the year, which is um, the Apple, Facebook, PayPal, um, yeah, just the, the steady growers that really dominate the market cap of the S&P continue to show the kind of multiples that are that are reasonable in this interest rate environment. I don't I don't think that they're overpriced and they've stalled for three months. You know, Apple's really done done nothing. If you if you look at a chart of a, of the thing stocks, Netflix, as an example, we bought Netflix precisely because it had come down and we compared it to Disney uh, recently. Now, Disney has been a fantastic stock, but at this at this price, we think that you can make a compelling case for Netflix over Disney um, just because of the, the move that Disney has had in both valuation and streaming and good for them. But, uh, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of the market, the growth part of the market, uh, technology stocks that have not risen in multiple recently. Uh, and they're going to have big years next year that we would buy right here. And, and Salesforce, uh, you know, is, is one of them. We talked about that that earlier. But mm -hmm. Apple, I think, right here is attractive, as is, as is uh, Facebook and, and even Google here. Okay. Doc, last word in this segment goes to you. Um, like I say, Scott, uh, I was surprised by how big the reopen trade was today at first, um, and then I more or less read through, Scott, it's not just the vaccine, it's a huge part of that, obviously, but it's also, if indeed we do get to $2,000 instead of $600, an awful lot of that is going to be going into travel, is going to be going into Vegas, is going into Disney. So those are the stocks that I was watching trading today, Scott, and I think that those continue to outperform if indeed this 2000 gets tacked on with that amendment that they're talking about. All right, we will take a quick break. We'll come back, talk about the SEC now allowing companies to raise capital through direct listings. We'll talk about what it means for the Valley, what it means to you, the investor. 
and the future of the traditional IPO. Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerstner joins us next. Talk to him about that, talk about the market, much more, and we'll do it in two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back. Positive there across the board for stocks today. The way you invest in IPOs may be about to change after the Securities and Exchange Commission approved a new type of direct listing at the New York Stock Exchange. Our Leslie Picker following the money for us. I'm wondering what this all means. People you've been talking to, we're still trying to figure it out, it sounds like. I think what this all means is still a big question mark at this stage of the game. Because as you mentioned yesterday, the, uh, the SEC greenlit this idea of, and I think this is the term that people are now using, a primary direct listing. What this means essentially is that a direct listing can also have a component alongside of it where companies are allowed to issue primary stock or stock that they can then use to raise cash to then reinvest in their business. Something that was previously a big deterrent for companies that were pursuing the direct listing method. They were unable to actually have a fundraise that coincided with their actual uh, mechanism of going public. Now that big hurdle has been lifted according to the SEC, which from the SEC standpoint, from the NYSE standpoint, which submitted the proposal to actually have this be uh, a new rule that's put in place, as well as a lot of VCs, they see this as a way to really democratize the IPO process because it gets rid of a lot of the Wall Street involvement. It it, uh, allows the companies to uh, no longer necessarily allocate stock at a discount to certain investors and watch that stock go, you know, soaring on the first day of trading, as we saw with Airbnb and DoorDash a few weeks ago. And so for them, this is kind of the next leg of the IPO process. Now, the question is how this actually works. I spoke with a lot of the leading IPO advisors, bankers, lawyers who do these things. And there's no clear consensus at this point in time exactly the mechanism of being able to do this. Uh, some people talked about maybe having a private placement that ran in, uh, you know, alongside the direct listing. But that would kind of defeat the whole purpose of the democratization of this because you'd be picking a price and selling to certain investors at that price and then doing a direct listing later. Uh, Other people are a little concerned about dilution and the lack of support that an underwriter would be able to provide if the stock actually went lower than expectations. That could cause a a lot more dilution. It could cause the company to... effectively sell more of itself uh, in this process than it initially intended. All of those uncertainties, I'm sure there are very, very smart people who are working on this right now and will find a solution to it. But the question is, how widespread will it be uh, at this time without a real mechanism for doing it? It's it's hard to say, Scott. I have a smart person waiting in the wings. In fact, Les, I, I want you to stay <laughs> in play, too. Brad Gerstner is the founder of Altimeter Capital. Uh, he joins us now. Brad, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's great to be back with the halftime gang, Scott. Thanks for having me. You know, you tweeted um, your obvious support of this yesterday. I know you watched uh, the interview that Bill Gurley did 
with Sarah and myself yesterday on, on the closing bell. You think this is a great thing? Well, listen, there's a lot of nuance here. Leslie just nailed some of the nuance. And when there's change, right, it takes a while to flush out exactly how everything works. But one thing is absolutely clear. 2020 is going to go down as the year that the traditional IPO got disrupted. You know, the three doors to the IPO market, a sponsored partnership with somebody like Altimeter, a traditional bank uh, underwriting, and now a direct list with a primary raise, they're wide open. That means lower cost to companies, which is better for employees, and it means a lot more fair access to retail investors. So uh, hats off to the SEC uh, uh, and to the exchanges uh, and to folks like Bill Gurley for pushing so hard on this innovation. But how, how do you address, though, some of the issues that Leslie raised? I, I know you, he- you heard her report. So how, yeah. do you, how do you respond to that from your side of the table? Yeah, well, I don't think that the primary raise is going to be a side-by-side private placement. In fact, it's just going to be a crossing of the buy and sell shares on those primary shares. But she rightfully pointed out the market is going to go where the market is going to go. And for some companies, that uncertainty will cause them to choose a traditional IPO or to partner with somebody like Altimeter on a sponsored approach where they have absolute certainty as to where those primary shares are going to price. And so, you know, it's easy to say in a market that has uniformly gone up over the course of the last 10 months that everybody's going to move to a direct list with a primary raise. Um, But when you think about different market conditions, that predictability, that underwriting or that sponsored approach may, in fact, be a better approach for a lot of companies. I I asked Gurley yesterday whether he thought this was going to change the traditional IPO process as we know it. Let's listen to part of his answer, and then we can talk about that on the other side. I can't imagine in my mind when you can do a primary offering through a direct listing why any board or um, or CEO or founder would choose to go through this this archaic process that has resulted in massive one-day wealth transfers straight from the founders, employees, and investors to the buy side. I mean, in, in, in 2018, it was $6 billion. In 2019, it was $7 billion. This year, it's going to be over $34 billion in one-day giveaways. So, Brad, Gurley's going all in, obviously. It doesn't sound like maybe you're willing to go quite as far as, as he went yesterday. I mean, first, let, let, let me be absolutely clear. Bill was out front. I helped put on uh, the direct list conference with him a couple of years ago. Um, He's been out front and he's driving innovation that is great for companies. And he's absolutely correct that these one-day pops, as we've recently seen in Airbnb and DoorDash, lead to a lot of challenges for the companies, right? Um, The employees are wondering why they can't sell into those pops. Retail investors are buying at prices um, that institutional investors are probably not pricing at. I tweeted the other day, Scott, as you may have seen, I think the bigger problem and the easy fix for the banks is to get rid of these ridiculous lockups, right? The idea that you're going to constrain supply into a retail market with this level of demand leads to an artificial price. We still don't know the real price. Um, We won't know the real price until we really have all of that supply in the market. So I think that Bill is right. Um, You know, the convergence of these one-day events, along with the primary raise around the direct list, will certainly move more companies into that camp. Um, From my perspective, markets are dynamic. Banks are already changing. Um, You know, they're changing their algorithms uh, around the auction to include retail demand, 
right? They're changing their approach to lockups. They'll change their approach to fees. And so if you believe that markets are dynamic, ultimately, I think all three doors will be viable options. But Bill is absolutely right that in the current conditions, it's not surprising to see companies pull their IPOs and move toward a direct list path. Let's bring Leslie in. Les? Uh, Brad, to your point on uh, the lockup dynamic, Airbnb actually did have uh, an ability for their employees to not be locked up and not be subjected to those similar lockups that we see with previous companies. And that stock still soared on its first day of trading. But my question to you is more on the lines of what do you think a company should be looking for from an IPO process? Is it to maximize price and find that best first price that can help them uh, generate the most in proceeds on that first day of trading? Is it to have a stable stock price over the long run? Does it depend on the company for what their goal might be with going public? Because I think each of those end goals can help dictate the type of IPO process they then pursue. Uh, if you're advising companies, you know, what, what would you tell them on that front? Well, Leslie, you make a couple great points there. First, while Airbnb may have had some of that liquidity, we still don't have the full supply in the market. And so many of these companies have one-tenth of their share base freely tradable around the IPO. And so to me, that's the easy place to go in order to, to avoid these unusual one-day pops into a you know, unusual market. Remember, this is a market where retail demand is as, as, as voracious as we've ever seen it. Um, but then when you think about the competing goals which companies are trying to achieve, I've yet to talk to a board or a CEO or a founder who says our only objective is to maximize day one price, right? The crossover into the public markets is just that. It's a single day event to get the company into the retail markets. They want it to be positive for their brand, positive for their employees, positive for their customers. Yes, they would like to see positive momentum in the share price, but nobody wants to see 100% day one pop. They don't want to unfairly treat retail investors. So they want retail investors to have access to the IPO, but they also want to make sure that retail investors are fully informed and paying a fair price. And so when you talk to the CFOs and CEOs, they're trying to balance those various features together. I think that we, you know, the banks have done themselves a disservice around some of these lockups. I'm confident that will change. But listen, the options of the SPAC market and the options of the direct list market, th this has been two decades in coming. We have broken right what, what was a structured oligopoly around the IPO. And this disruption is super, uh, super uh, fantastic development for our capital markets. Let me ask you this. I, I know uh, others on the committee want, want to get in, but but don't in some respects, Brad, I'm trying to think of sort of how the the viewer today should be thinking about it. You know, my peeps who are who are watching this thinking, you know, is this good or bad for me? Um, don't the underwriters, at least in some respect, and they don't always get it right, but help ensure that, quote unquote, fair price for the individual retail investor who's excited about an IPO? Well, if Bill were on the show, he would say absolutely not. Right. The only like, how do we define fair? Fair is where buyers and sellers meet in an open marketplace and you cross their trades and where they cross. That is fair in an unfettered marketplace. So price discovery is a challenge. It's particularly challenging in markets like this, where retail investors seem to have a much more aggressive appetite to valuation than institutional investors that have traditionally stabilized most of these IPOs. 
Um, so I think that, again, this is a good development. It will provide more access to retail investors. But remember, caveat emptor, only a few of these direct lists go down. You have retail investors losing a bunch of money into an IPO. The demand will start drying up very quickly. And the appetite and the, the, you know, the underwriting from the banks may appear to be a great feature in a market that is not always up and to the right. Steve Weiss and then Kerry. But first, Steve. Hey, Steve. Yeah, so I have a number of questions. How you doing, Brad? Good, good to see you again. Um, I have a number of questions. And, and my background is I priced hundreds of deals at Lehman. I chaired the Capital Commitment Committee, which approved all IPOs. And what troubles me about this process is the following. Retail investors don't read the reds. They don't read the prospectus. And you'll see more and more companies come out with these onerous governance issues that'll be two classes of stock. And the founders, as we've seen, may not even own any shares anymore. And when I was doing things, and I allocated every deal Lehman did for five years, companies would come and say, we don't want any more than 20% going to the retail investor. So I think that you could have accomplished the same thing by saying to banks, by asserting yourselves, not use the VC, because now it's up to management and the board saying, we want to do it through Charles Schwab. We want to do it through Fidelity. We want this all to go to retail investors. And we want to set the price at this level because we think that's what valuation is. When you're doing direct listing, there's nobody there that's taking on the liability as a major investment bank is. So you're through that. You don't have to give the five-year projections that we'd look for in a committee. And you also, and this is really, in my view, for the VC community, which wants 100% liquidity on day one. Lockups are there to protect the shareholders, to make sure that companies deliver, at least in the first six months, so lockups generally 180 days, deliver on what they said. And if they did, and the stock continues to perform, there's not an investment bank that wouldn't let a okay. VC or management or employees out of their lockups early. All right. I hope you remembered that whole question. It was 20 questions. It was 20 <laughs> deep respect, questions. <laughs> deep respect for the background and deep respect for, you know, those concerns. Listen, this is not a panacea for the retail investor, right? Uh, it, it, you know, if you're going to give the retail investor more access, then the retail investor takes on more risk. And so I, too, worry, particularly in a hot market like this one, where there is a belief that every IPO goes up and to the right that retail investors are going to find themselves buying shares in Airbnb at $150, $160 a share. And then when we see growth multiples contract in 2021, uh, as rates, you know, as you guys have been discussing, as rates go up, all of a sudden people will understand that markets move in both directions. Um, but, but I don't agree that banks are the great protector of the retail investor. I don't agree that uh, these lockups are required. In fact, I think they're an impediment to finding fair price in a market like this. And so to be sure, banks will evolve. Our pricing algorithms will get better. But this direct list is as an option. We'll keep all of these doors honest and we'll certainly give more access to the retail investor. Carrie. So, Brad, this is a, a term you, you haven't used, but I'm, I'm curious what you think about it. It feels to me as we have lived for decades within this sort of in-crowd system where the banks provide the capital and the wink to the institutional investors. I spent 
two decades at Fidelity, and we bought 10% of so many deals, you know, innumerable deals. We got our shares, they got their fees, and that crowd was very happy. So now you're opening it up, and it's amazing how the Association for Institutional Investors are, are suddenly talking about the lack of democracy, transparency, the egalitarian system that the banks have upheld. I mean, I, I just think that's rubbish. I mean, there are many things that, as Steve pointed out, you could say are protected by the current system that you have to have concern about. But one thing it wasn't is fair to smaller institutions, retailers, and whoever said, right, that the banks did anything to protect the institutional investors, really. They didn't protect the price. The deals that they sold in 2000, you know, all crashed and burned. So I, I'm just wondering, you know, your thoughts yeah. on the in-crowd um, protecting itself. It's not the Make-A-Wish Foundation. <laughs> it's, a, it, it, it's a great point. And listen, um, you know, Altimeter has been a beneficiary of the system as well. We get allocations and IPOs from the banks. Uh, mutual funds get allocations in IPOs from banks. Um, but I'm cheering on, right, the democratization through competition. Direct lists are good. Sponsored IPOs uh, uh, with, with SPACs like Altimeter are good alternatives. And all of these alternatives serve to force the other alternatives to respond. What that means is lower costs, more access, but I do think we have to be very careful, particularly in a market like this, to remind retail investors that not all IPOs are created equal, not all IPOs go up and to the right. And in fact, if we reduce the lockups, whether a traditional IPO or whether a direct list, the probability that you're going to get these big pops goes down quite dramatically. And if you believe in the theory of reflexivity, as I do, that also means that the demand will go down. Because if people see the free lunch go away, they will have to really believe in the company and its long-term prospects if they want to buy the IPO. All right. But before I let you hit the slopes again with Mosley, uh, I have one more question, and I want you to, to leave something for our viewers, if, if you could. Uh, we're at a unique place in the market, it, it feels like right now, whether you know stocks are tired, we need to rest before we restart. Some are worried about high valuations in spaces that you and I have spoken about a lot in enterprise software and maybe some other parts, too. Where are we in your mind now and where are we going to go in the in, let's say in the short term, three, six months? Yeah, I heard the conversation earlier today. And, and, and Scott, I remember talking on, on your air at the end of March. And if you would have told me on that day. Um, that the NASDAQ was going to be up over 40%, that the Russell and the S&P upwards of plus 20%, uh, we wouldn't have believed it, particularly on the heels of 2019. Um, multiples are stretched, right? A 100 basis point change in the discount rate should impact growth multiples by 15 to 20% and higher growth companies even more. And remain, remember, the 10-year is 100 basis points below where it was pre-COVID. So I worry that we're heading into a year where there's going to be headwinds, certainly as those, the long end of the curve normalizes, headwinds on these multiples. 2021 may very well be a year of consolidation. You got your returns for 2021, most likely in 2020. So we remain incredibly bullish on technology, incredibly bullish on the three to five year arc of this disruption and these major themes we're investing again. 
Um, but for retail investors, and as we think about it from our own funds perspective, I think you have to take a deep breath as we exit 2020. You have to have deep gratitude for our scientists who've pr proven uh, and delivered vaccines that we should all be taking to get us past this, uh, this pandemic. But you should also be sober to the fact that markets don't only go up. And as we look at multiples, they're, they're bound to consolidate, they're bound to revert to the mean, have a balanced portfolio, make sure you leave yourself some dry powder uh, you know, if you're out there to buy into those dips, you don't want to be selling when those things occur. Well, you sound a little more cautious than I would have expected. I mean, I, I get to where you're coming from on the valuations and multiples being stretched. I, I asked Joe earlier in the show about the impact on rising rates to the growth trade, for example. But the pent up demand um, because of what we've been going through feels like it's going to be so strong on the other side of the vaccine. Is, is it fair to say that the first half and this is sort of the Tom Lee view as well. The first half of 21 may be muted because of all of this. We have to work our way through. And then you get, in his words, the potential of a boom in the second half as some of that pent up demand is able to explode itself out into the real world. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that the new normal is going to look a lot like the old normal. And that all of us want to get out of our houses. We want to spend. We want to engage in live music. We want to engage in in, in, in our vacations and interactions again. That's going to be a huge tailwind to the economy. But all of that could be true, and the market could still go down, right? The market is a discounting mechanism. We already know that is going to occur. And so I think what is going to be on the minds of investors as all of that occur occurs is that we have excess liquidity in the markets. We have extraordinarily low rates into a normalizing market. And so I think it, it, it's just, it, you know, it would behoove you right, to have a balanced portfolio that accept, accepts that one probability may be that all of the recovery occurs, which is great for society, but we may not see another, well, in fact, I would predict we don't see another run in 2021 the way we have in 2020. Wow. Are you, can I ask you, are you, are you like net long, short, like it sounds like you're, you yeah, know. Hmm? Yeah, are, we've taken, you know, our, we're certainly net long. We're always net long. Uh, the market. We love the companies that we're in, but we've consolidated behind our best companies. Um, you know, we've at, we've reduced our net long exposure so that we give ourselves some buying power when we see the markets retrace. Um, and, you know, listen, we're deploying a lot of capital into the private markets because these trends around software and internet over the course of the next five to 10 years are accelerating. But right now, I think so, the public market has gotten a bit ahead of itself. Um, we're still long that market, uh, but we've given ourselves some uh, some significant dry powder to buy into it, uh, into our favorite companies if we see those retracements occur. All right. Great to get some uh, perspective on that, uh, certainly. Best of uh, the end of the year to you. Good holidays to you and your family. I know we'll talk on the other side, and I look forward to that. Thank you. Judge, thanks for your leadership. Um, you know, every day through COVID, you've been beating the drum. It's really important. We have to continue it. Everybody needs to take the vaccine. Everybody needs to remain vigilant. Let's get past this and celebrate like hell in the back half of 2021. Yeah, I look forward to toasting with you on that. Brad Gerstner of Altimeter, thank you. Leslie, of course, thanks so much to you as well for participating in that conversation. Let's get the headlines now with Sue Herrera. Hi, Sue. Hi, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. 
The Chief Justice of Ohio's Supreme Court has removed a state judge from two cases for continuing to hold in-person hearings without setting COVID safety requirements like mask wearing or social distancing. In California, red flag wildfire warnings have gone into effect across Los Angeles and a large swath of Southern California. One utility says it is considering cutting electricity to 170,000 customers to prevent fires from being started by downed power lines. In Hong Kong, media tycoon Jimmy Lai is free on bail nearly three weeks after being jailed over fraud and national security related charges. And a new study suggests wearing a mask is not enough to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Researchers found masks reduce the number of droplets being spread, but at distances under six feet, enough droplets to cause infection still make it through several different types of mask materials. Got to stay six feet apart at least. Scott, you're up to date. Back to you. All right. Appreciate that, Sue. Thank you. This Dow component up 40 percent in the past three months, just named a top pick for 2021. Better late than never. Maybe. There it is right there. The mystery chart reveal is coming up next on The Half. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back. Let's get to Rahel Solomon with the reveal of the mystery chart. Rahel. That would be Disney. Hi, Scott. So Rosenblatt is naming Disney one of the top picks in consumer tech for 2021. Rating is a buy with the price target going to 210 from 155 a share. So analysts like the pipeline of new and original content coming to Disney Plus also sees the vaccine as support that people will return to parks. Baird is initiating coverage of Qualcomm with an outperform. Price target here is $200. So in the near term, Scott, analysts see it benefiting from 5G and longer term says that Qualcomm is well positioned to leverage its technology into AI applications and automotive and consumer. And then finally, Monster Beverage is being added to Deutsche's fresh money conviction list with the price target of $99. With the note saying, Scott, that Monster offers a rare growth story in consumer packaged goods that generates strong free cash flow, enjoys a strong net cash position and trades at an attractive valuation. You can see shares are up. About half a percent, Scott. Rahel, thank you. Making Joe Terranova very happy. He bought it at 55. He's only up about 60 percent. Not so bad. Let's talk Disney. Let's do that because, John, you own calls. Uh, top pick. Stocks run a lot, right? 
It's probably a widely held name. Caution or not? Well, always caution, Scott, but uh, talk about runway in front of these guys for all the reasons we all know. Uh, sports is going to be bigger and better. People are just so hungry for this to make a big comeback rather than to see these empty stadiums with the pumped-in noise and so forth, Scott. And then you've got the theme parks. Then you've got movies. I mean, I think they have a bright 2021 ahead of them and probably bright 2022 as well. Look at the slew of movies that they've got scheduled to be coming out over that two-year period and some of the rides probably that they'll develop off of those properties, Scott. So, yeah, I love it. I hold it. I think this will be a long-term hold. Hey, Joe, quickly, give me something on Monster. You deserve it. Uh, great pick of yours and a, a great gain, as I mentioned. Now what, though? Thank you. Well, can you find a consumer staple with 13% organic growth when the average for a consumer staple beverage company is 5%? So that's why you stay with Monster Beverage. They will ultimately introduce hard seltzer and CBD products. It's a name that's going to be a core holding for me going forward into the future, and it obviously has been for the better part of the last couple of years. Yeah, nice run for sure. Thank you for that. Coming up, John has unusual activity. Haven't forgotten about that. We'll do it next. Okay, Doc, you're up. Unusual. Tell us what you got. Let's do it, Scott. GameStop, GME, uh, a big investor, has really been pushing hard and helping lift shares. Uh, we note that there are Feb 22 calls being bought very aggressively today. I bought those. That's probably in the neighborhood of a 30 to 60 day trade, Scott. Love the action in GME. Second one, fuel cell. And this one, of course, with some of the legislation that's worked its way through, uh, hopefully going to be turning into bills and law next year, as well as uh, a very supportive President Biden. Um, I think FCEL January uh, 13 calls. The stock has already exploded today through 13 just while we've been on this show, Scott. Love that action. I'm in these probably for the next 20 days. Okay, good stuff. Thank you. Coming up, the Russell 2000 hitting a new all-time high. We'll find out how the futures traders are playing that. Is it too stretched or not? Some answers next. It's time for the futures outlook. Russell 2000 outperforming the large-cap S&P 500 since the March lows, and its run could continue into the new year. I think that's what our next guests are going to say. Brian Stutland, Bill Baruch joining us now. Stutz, is that what you think? I mean, it's, it's come a long way. It certainly has. And, I mean, the run has been tremendous. And the, the economic environment sets up that way, right? Because we've seen durable goods increase. We've seen the M2 money supply continue to expand, especially CPI numbers now, inflationary pressures to the upside. That's typically favorable towards small caps. So we rotated into some small cap allocation for clients. But you're right. I mean, the run has been tremendous here. I think it's gotten a little ahead of itself to some degree. I'd rather start to look to more rotate towards large cap value than small cap, I think, at this point, because I think large cap value, if this strain mutation is not in effect on vaccination, at 0% interest rates across the board, large cap value is very undervalued. So I'd be playing that a little bit more. But can the Russell get to 2100? Yeah, I think so by, by probably end of January. What do you think, Bill? I mean, we have, we have some rocky roads to get through uh, before we can get to the other side in this sort of smooth, smooth traveling. Yeah, thanks, Judge. And Brian's spot on. The Russell 2000, it's underperformed for the last decade, and it really broke out to its first record high 
since 2018 in November. We, too, have been out, uh, over, overweight on the Russell 2000, on small caps in general. I think they can continue to outperform, but this has been a breakout already, 17% since that breakout. So we're looking to delever some of that. We took futures off on ahead of quadru quadruple witching. Look for a little pullback. 1860, 1900 is going to be the support, but 150% retracement from the uh, February highs to those March lows gives you 2100, and that's the upside target. All right, good stuff. Guys, thank you very much. We'll talk to you again soon. Brian, Bill, Final Trades are next. All right, let's do Final Trades. Kerry, we're trying to put together a little something here. Uh, we're all near the highs of the day, right as we hit midday. What's your final trade for us? Alibaba, biggest e-commerce platform, biggest country, been in a slump. Mm, Weiss, you just sold that, didn't you? Yeah, I think it stays in a slump. Mistake. Don't want to be in Chinese stocks. <laughs> <laughs> Last word to Carrie, quick. But I love Carrie. I love Carrie. Uh, Atlantic is sustainability. <laughs> love you too, uh, Steve. Love you too. At, uh, AY, it's got, it's got a monster yield of 4.5% that's absolutely safe. It's renewable energy. It's at a high, but this is going to go a lot higher. Great business. And in the COVID relief plan, don't forget, we put stuff in there for clean energy. We'll get a lot more under Biden. Okay. Joe. Garmin, that's a name we haven't spoken about much in the past couple of years, Scott, but it's uh, near a 52-week high. It's all about mobility, 25 times earnings with a 2% dividend yield. I like it here. Okay. And the good doctor. Penn Gaming, love it as a reopening play, and the Barstool crew, got to love it, Scott. Yeah. Bang. All right. Guys, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching as well. The Exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.